0: Well, it's a a good day to be here worshiping the Lord. Um, He's been very gracious to us, as he always is, um, to just allow us to come together in congregation and sing and praise him and study his word. And so I would like to do that now. If you would turn your Bibles to James chapter 4, as we're nearing the end of the book. We'll look at the first ten verses of chapter four this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord, for just a honor to stand before your people, God, and proclaim your word. Um, what a amazing thing that you have given us! You've given us this scripture, Lord. We praise you for it. And I I pray, God, that we would better understand it. And as we look at this chapter in James, God, that you would teach us to apply your will, to apply your word to our lives, that we would honor and glory, glorify you, and that others would see that, and that it would open doors for us to proclaim Christ, that we would see people saved, that we would see people brought into your kingdom, Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so as with the rest of the book of James, we look at this as a and we're looking at a very practical kind of a where the rubber meets the road type of book. Right. This is not it's not it it doesn't he doesn't get into some of the deep theological things that Paul does, but he takes those theological truths and he says, this is how you apply them. This is what it looks like. In your life. And and as as we start in this chapter 4 in, in verse 1, you're going to see things weren't that much different then than they are now. Let's look at it. Verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Huh. Now remember, he's writing to the church here. So thousands of years ago, the church had quarrels and fights. Among themselves, it's not any different than it is today. We are still dealing with this body of flesh. We're still dealing with this unredeemed part of our nature. But he's, but he's not. That does not mean it's okay. He was addressing them at the time, just as he is addressing us at this time. What causes these quarrels and fights among you? And he says, "This is it not that your passions are at war." Within you. And I think there's two meanings there. I think we're actually going to see a great secret. And maybe it's not so much of a secret. Revealed here in verse one. What causes fighting? What causes these little squirmishes and these quarrels that start out small and they escalate into big quarrels and squirmishes? And pretty soon you have church splits. And you have families split apart. And you have divorce. You have people quitting jobs and getting fired and all of these things. What causes that? Our own desires. Pretty clear. When we give in to those fleshly desires within us. He's talking about that desire that is within us. There's this battle going on within us, right? There's this the part of us that has been redeemed the part of us that is in line with the Holy Ghost the Holy Spirit and and is saying We're, I want to live godly I want to go this direction and then there's that little bit of flesh a little bit of part of us that is still in this body that's saying no I want to do this and when you give in to that warring inside you and you go with your own desire rather than God's desire it's going to cause, Squirmishes. That's going to cause fights. Um, and like I said, that, that happened. You can take that to whatever context of whatever group of people you're dealing with. Because as long as you're dealing with people, you're going to deal with these issues. And it happens within the church. It could be, it could happen within your family. It could happen within your job. And we're going to get down, as we go down through these verses, we're going to see even more of the reason of why this is. But the bottom line is, your desire causes fights. And the reason for that is, because when your desire is blocked, when you don't get the things that you want, it causes anger. That's the bottom line here. When you don't get the things you want, you get mad. And we're going to find out why as we go through. But look at verse 2. He says, you desire... And do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then he says, You do not have because you do not ask. So look again, these blocked desires make us angry, and so what do you do when you get angry? He says, You murder. He's using an extreme here. That's what, what happens with murders. That's what happens. Somebody gets angry and then they act on that anger and they wind up killing someone, right? In an actual physical murder. But we know that Jesus said what? He said, to hate your brother is a murder in the heart, right? And so, so he's saying you desire, that, that's basically speaking of the depravity of man. Man's desire is to please himself. And when you don't get your way, you get angry. And what is that anger? It's basically murder being acted out in the heart. The ama- and then the amazing thing about this is, even as James is writing this, it could even be talking about good things here. You may desire something that is good, and you may not get it the way you want it, Or when you want it, and so you have the anger build up. And that's what happens, I think, a lot of times within a church congregation, within a church body. There may be a desire you have that's good. Maybe it is a desire to teach. Maybe it is a desire to serve in a certain area. And you have these talents, and you have these gifts, and you're not being used, and what happens? The guy that's being used is, he's not as talented as me. My desire is to preach. My desire is to teach. My desire is to be on stage and play music or whatever it is. And what, what does he say? You desire and do not have. And so what happens? You start getting a disdain for the people that do. That's called cavity. And this anger comes up in you. And before you know it, you got a hatred for your brother or for your sister and you've committed murder in the heart and you haven't even realized it. That's what James is talking about here. You're not getting your way. How many times have you seen this? Have you ever seen somebody basically throw a fit? They leave a church. They quit coming. They, whatever. They start, what, what else happens? Maybe they keep coming. They start talking over here about the problems with the guy that they want to be with the guy that has something that they want. Maybe it's not even a good thing. Or maybe it is a good thing. Maybe it's a job. Right? Does this happen in the workplace? Has anybody ever been passed up for a promotion? You deserved it, right? You worked harder than the other person. You got passed up. And so what happens? Your desire was blocked. And it starts swelling up in you. Has anybody ever been the other end of that, where you got the promotion, or you got whatever it is, and the other people didn't like it? It's a tough spot. It's a tough spot to be. So James is saying here, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. He says you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. They got what I want, and so I'm just, I'm jealous, and you can see it as clear as day. I've seen it over and over again. Um... Almost in all walks of life you can see this. You can see it in children. It starts when they're little. What happens when you introduce a new toy? The same toy can be sitting there at my house and it hasn't been played with for two months. And some, another child comes over, finds it, and all of a sudden, that's mine. He had not played with it in two months. That's mine. And we are no different as adults. We just know how to package it a little better. Right, And we find we're we're much more undermining in the way that we go about it. But he says you covet and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. You can't get it the way that you want to, so I'm going to fight and quarrel, and we're going to get into this big thing, all for what? For my desires haven't been fulfilled. So, But he goes on in this next part. He gives us a description of how to overcome this sin. He gives us the proper prescription for how to deal with the things, the desires of your heart. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. The prescription for fulfilling your desires is prayer. It's talking to God. It's asking Him for it. And there's two things, and we'll see in the next verse. If it is a good thing that He desires to give you, he will give it to you in His time. And so the answer is not trying to take it from somebody else. The answer is not jealousy. And the answer is not undercutting or undermining your brothers and sisters or even those of the world to get what you want. The answer is go to God and ask Him for the, for the desires. And if it is His will... He will, he will give it to you. But you have to go to him and be willing to accept his answer, even if it is no. Even if it is not right away. We always trust God until he doesn't do it quick enough. Then we want to trust ourselves, right? We want to push the, push the ball up the court a little quicker. But then, look at verse 3 and it goes a step further. Verse 3 says... You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So there's two things here. Either you're not getting what you want because you do not ask. Or you're asking and you're asking wrongly. I think the King James says you ask amiss. You're missing the mark. You're missing the point. Why? You want whatever it is to spend it on your passions. Two people could be praying for the same exact thing. And one could be in the will, a godly, in the will of God prayer, and the other one could be a self-motivated prayer. Let's say it's money. I'm praying for a raise, and somebody else is praying for a raise at the same time. My prayer is I want the raise so that I can, you know, buy some cool toys, right? I, I, I want a new car. I want a new boat. I want a four-wheeler. Just to ride around and have fun on. And the other guy's praying for a raise. Because he really sees people hurting and he wants to be able to help them. Or he sees missionaries come in and speak. As we have here pretty often. And he sees that the work is going on in other places. And they want to be able to support that. So I'm praying to God for a raise. One is completely self-motivated. And the other one is completely selfless motivated, right? Two things, same thing. So it all depends on how you are praying. Are you praying in the will of God or are you praying in your own will? Self-motivated prayers, you have not because you ask amiss. That is what it means to ask amiss. You're praying for the wrong thing. You're praying for The right thing with the wrong motive. So examine your motives. Examine your desires. Are they self-centered? Or are they kingdom-centered? Have you considered this thing? that? And this is what happens. In the first part where he says you have not because you ask not. Many times for the Christian. If you will go to the Lord in prayer about this thing that you think you so need. Or you so desire, and you start praying about it, what happens? Many times while you're praying, because I don't know if you guys knew this, but prayer is a two way thing. It's not just you talking to God. He also talks back in, in a few ways. One, the main one, is through His Word. But there's many times when you're praying, and if you're in His Word and you're studying God, and then you go to prayer, there's many times as you're praying the Holy Spirit convicts you and says you don't even need that. And then you learn that you're asking amiss and you change your prayer. Because are we really changing God's mind when we pray? You ever think about that? Are we really asking him for a raise, say, and oh, I never thought about that. I think I'll give you a, I think I'll work through your boss and give you a raise. No, God's will is solid. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So really what prayer, really when you come down to it, is is it's us conforming our will to God's will. And so as we pray, that's what happens. And so as we go to God with these desires, he teaches us those things through prayer. And sometimes as Christians we know it, and that's the reason we don't ask. You ever had one of those? You ever been in that spot? I really want this new car, Lord. But, except you don't pray it because you're pretty sure God doesn't see the need for you to have a Corvette. And so you just want it. And that's why you don't ask. But if it's something godly, has anybody ever had a hesitation to pray for um, something that's truly godly? Have you ever hesitated to pray for your loved ones to be saved? I mean, like, I just don't feel like right about going to God about this. No, have you ever felt um, hesitant to pray for, uh, like, say you have a job and you're trying to find more time where you can make it to church? Have you ever been hesitant to pray, God, I I really... No, you, you have no problem going to the Lord with that. It's just like as a child, if you remember as a child... You would go to your parents, you would ask for something. I had no problem ever going to my dad and saying, "Hey, Dad, do you care if I mow the lawn?" Never hesitated. I wasn't nervous about asking that question. I went right up to him. Actually, I probably never did. Let's be honest here. If I would have, I do remember one time I asked him if, I, if he cared if I hoed the garden. Like, "Hey, can I hoe the garden? And he was, I mean, kind of looked at me with shock, and he's like, no, go ahead, yeah. We don't have a hesitation to ask for those things. But what I did have a hesitation was, hey, can I stay up later on Saturday night? Why? Because I already knew the answer. I already knew he wasn't going to want to say yes to that. And if I got a yes, it was because I was going to somehow manipulate him or... or. Beg enough that he would say yes That's the way we are with God When it's a godly desire You have no problem going to God with that prayer But you have not Because you ask not Why do you ask not Because it could be That the thing you're asking for Is your own desire And not a desire for the kingdom Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 Let's take a look at Paul's prayer Starting in verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's what he said. This is what he says he prays for the church at Ephesus. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. So you just look at that. When Paul prays this on behalf of the Ephesians, his prayer is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul prays that knowing completely that that's what God is going to do. He's knowing completely that that's God's desire for His people. So he's praying in the will of God. He says, having Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. He prays for the eyes of your heart. He's praying for people to be able to see the truth. He's praying for them to see more truth. Go deeper into truth. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints? So what is it? Paul prays for the church at Ephesus within the will of God. Why? Because he has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power and the Holy Spirit is going to lead you into those proper prayers. That's what this is really about. That's what that's really what James is talking about here. It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of where your desires are placed. We'll go on. Look on in verse four. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, when he talks about adultery here, he is actually not talking about physically uh, committing adultery. Although that would definitely fall into this category. But he's actually comparing here. What he's doing is he's comparing those who love the world more than they love Jesus to adulterers. That's what he's doing. If you're at going in and testing in and having these affairs, so to speak, with the world, he's calling you an adulterer. He's using the language to show you how serious it is, right? So you think, well, if I just, if I just, you know, dip into this on Saturday night, Maybe I go out to the bars and hang out and, you know, indulge in some fleshly desires a little bit on Saturday night. That's okay. I'm still coming to the church on Sunday. Well, James is calling that an affair. James is saying you cannot be in both places. What's he say? He says friendship with the world is enmity with God. You cannot be halfway Christian and halfway part of the world. You can't be pretty close with God. You know, we're friends. I'm friends with God. But I like all this other stuff too. No, he's saying if you are friends with the world, if you still haven't dropped that worldly desire, then you're an enemy of the Father. You're an enemy of God. And so he's painting a picture of the seriousness of sin of loving the world. It also allows us to see that the fighting and quarreling in context here among the church or among ourselves. It's really not about the people that you're fighting with, especially within the church. If you're fighting and quarreling with people within the church, it's not about those people. It's really about God. Verse five, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit? That he has made to dwell in us. The purpose is that the Holy Spirit dwells in his people. And it is not in vain. And he can bring people back to Christ. The same as he brought them to the cross in the first place. He, can, he, he is in you. And he will bring you away from that flirtation with the world. And he may be using this scripture right now to do it he may be using this sermon right now to do it so i would encourage you examine your relationship with the world right now are you flirting with those things that you used to love are you flirting with those desires of the flesh are you indulging in them are you full out in them if you are but you're a christian but you've been saved you've been born again Then the call is to repent. In verse 6 he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives more grace. See, the grace that we had when we were saved was necessary. But it was not a one-time thing. The perseverance of the Christian in order to stay on the path of righteousness, in order to continue to follow Christ, takes an abundance of grace every day of our life. And he's going to continue that, and he gives us more. He, and, and it comes through the Holy Spirit. And he will grant you repentance of this flirtation with the world. And he will grant you repentance of this indulgence in the world. And whatever it is that's going on. He will bring you back. But here he brings up. The issue of pride. And, and that's what it, we go back to. When your desires are stopped. It causes anger. The question is why. Why is it that if you don't get what you want. You get mad. And it comes down to this. It comes down to pride. The person who is at war with others, especially over insignificant things, it's pride. It is the thought that my rights were violated. I deserve better. I deserve this. I deserve that raise that I was supposed to get. I deserve that promotion. I deserve for you to treat me in a certain way. Right? It's pride. When the reality is, when you go back and you understand the gospel, and you go back to Ephesians, and you understand that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and there is none righteous, no, not one, we've all gone astray, you don't deserve anything but God's wrath. That's what we deserve, and if you remind yourself of that, then maybe it will help to suppress some of that pride and put others as higher. So yeah, are you going to get passed up for, for promotions? Probably. Are you going to not get the raise you deserve? Probably. Are you not going to get the position that you want in wherever it is, in the church, in the government, in the school? Yeah, those things are going to happen. Because there's no promises as Christians that God's going to make everything smooth and easy from here on out. But what is going to happen is the way that you deal with those is how people will see you as a Christian. That is how much set apart you can appear. That is how much glory you can give to God. So maybe it is that God is going to put this trial on you of whatever your desire is that you're not getting and through that trial you're going to glorify him and he's going to use it to soften people's hearts and then the gospel will be proclaimed and somebody will be saved. And so you got to ask yourself the question is me not getting that position or me not getting the desire that I want is it worth it if somebody's saved? It's an honest question, right? Have you ever asked yourself that? The Bible is clear that the angels in heaven rejoice over one who comes to repentance. It is a big deal. One person is saved. It took God himself dying on the cross for that to happen. So is it worth it for you to not get XYZ? So that one could be saved. If that's how God so chooses to do it. I would say yes. I would say it's worth it. And and I mean going back to the root of this as being the pride. Think about the times when your anger gets the best of you. Think about the quarrels you've had with people. Was it not because somehow they violated you? Was it not because somehow... They just didn't respect you enough. I deal with listen, I'm preaching to me today because I deal with this a lot in my classroom at school. Tim's shaking his head, he probably does too. Anybody that's a teacher understands this. Because we have this we have this certain thing that like, listen, we're the teacher, and this is true, because you're in the authority of the classroom, just like we heard this morning, there is a level of authority that should be respected. And we (laughs) Sometimes we get it. And so I get, but I get angry. Why? Because they disrespected me. And then I, then I'm reminded how much I disrespected God. And how much I continue it, continually to disrespect him. The one who really does, the only one who really does deserve that respect And so the anger that comes from that, based on pride, because I somehow deserve better. But there's good news at the end of that verse, and that is that God gives grace to the humble. And I'm very humble, right? How does God give grace to the humble? How does one become humble? Even if you get humble and then you're like, yeah, I'm I'm humble today. Oh, I just blew it. Now I'm prideful prideful again. Right? There's no escaping this. How does that happen? Well, I, I don't think this is any big news to most of you. It's by God's grace that humility is even a thing. How do you become humble it's only by God's grace. It's only by His intervention. So we're in this place like He says to be humble, but how do we become humble? But there are some practical things, though. There's some practical ways to become humble. And the number one way is, I think I've, I think I remember preaching this from here before. Um, if you look at somebody that thinks they're pretty good at a certain sport... Let's say basketball. We, got, we used to have a kid over at Stratford that, I mean, he thought he was next NBA player. He's the best there is at basketball. And, I mean, he, he'd swell up and brag about it and all that stuff. Well, how's a, what's a good way to humble somebody that's good at basketball? You put him on the court with somebody... That's really good at basketball, right? And there's always somebody better, almost. And so if he, this, if you think you're really good at basketball, and then you watch LeBron James play, and you really study LeBron James and see how good he is, you compare yourself to him, it's a pretty humbling experience. Right? Ronnie, <laughs> I'm gonna steal a story from Ronnie. Ronnie thought he was a tough guy gonna be a boxer. And uh, he went down to, I think his Ardmore or something like that when he was young and decided to get in the boxing ring. He's going to start training. And I'll just make the long story short. It wasn't very long. He couldn't breathe, and he was about to die. And this was just some low-end boxer, right? But the guy actually knew. That was a humbling experience. Why? Because he compared himself to somebody that was actually good at it. So you want to so if you want to find humility, study Christ. Go read the gospels and watch Jesus. Go read the crucif- the, the passion account, the, the, the night of the crucifixion. It, it gets me every time when Pilate's looking at Jesus, the Creator, the one who gave him life, and says, Don't you know who I am? And Jesus is silent. You want to be humbled? Compare yourself to Jesus. And you'll find humility in that. And the very fact that you want to do that is God working in you. So that's where humility comes from. And God when when that happens, he's going to give an abundance of grace to his people. Look at verse seven and eight. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. So here we see more of the answer. What is it? It's submission to God. How do you become humble? You submit to him. You come under his authority. And then look at this. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And what that tells me is that blaming the devil is never an excuse. Why? Because James clearly says here, if you resist him, he'll flee from you. Interesting thing about Satan, he doesn't have full control over you. He doesn't. Satan influences people who want to be influenced. We watched a movie before they had us watch this movie as part of our training before school started back up. And there was a lot of troubled teens in this movie going through all kinds of different things. The movie's called Listen. I don't necessarily recommend it. But um, there was this one part in here. There, there was It was a Hispanic guy, young man, high school kid. And he was joining, it was, he was veering off into this gang life. And his mom, who was, from what we could see from the movie, was being faithful, trying to provide, she's single mother, trying to pull him back, and he keeps going off into this gang stuff. And so you have this question, I mean, this question comes up in my mind while I'm watching this movie. Why, why is he doing that? Why would he not just stay away from that? You know the evils that are with it. I mean, you know, he kind of, they portray him as kind of this good kid. He's just being pulled that way. Well, why, why do people go into that? Why do people fall off into the party scene or into drugs or into whatever? They're following the desires of their heart. And then as soon as they go that way, Satan is plenty available to to lead you and guide you into that. But you can't blame him. You can't blame him for your sins. You can't blame him for the things you get into. Why? Because if you resist him, he'll flee from you. He's He's just leading those that are wanting to be influenced. They want to go that direction already. And then it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So, submit to God, resist the devil, and draw near to God. Now, at first, this seems backwards. Does this seem backwards to some of you? Draw near to God and then he'll draw near to you. But we know that God first chose us and that's the reason we love him is because he first loved us. But yet it's not so backwards because even at this moment, he's speaking to you. Even at this moment, he's using this very scripture, this very verse to say you may be flirting with the world. You may be getting out there. You may just even in your desires, nobody may see it. But even in your desires, you may be thinking, well, I wish I could just do a little more. I wish I could just go a little farther into this. I kind of miss those days when I was had less responsibilities for the Lord you know, Ronnie preached a sermon two two weeks ago about your joy and how to get that joy back. And this is kind of going right along the same lines with that. You, you may have lost your joy in Christ because you're, temp, you're tipping your toe over into some sin somewhere. And yet he says, draw near to me and he will draw near to you. If you draw near. To... So how do you draw near to him? Well, he's using the scripture. He's already drawing you. He's already calling you to do that. He's already calling you to repentance. And so it's not necessarily backwards because he's calling us to draw near. And here's some simple, some spiritual disciplines to keep that, to help you do that. If you have a desire to do that, listen, you, prayer, take Time. Set it aside and pray. Simple. But yet, it's so simple, but yet we skip it so often. We don't pray like we should. We don't set the time aside. I was going to pray, but I got busy. What were you busy with that was more important than the one who gave you life and the one who gave you new life? Spend time in prayer. You know, church is another thing. Spending time in corporate worship is extremely important. And that habit is extremely important. I've had a couple of students graduate this year. And I told one of them she was heading up to Stillwater. And I've been to Stillwater and there's lots of distractions there. I said, go to church immediately. Do not wait. Find one. And I had already looked some and found some for kind of recommendations. I said, go. She was going on a Wednesday. I said, go tonight. Go Sunday. The first time you will get out of a habit of that faster than you can realize. And sometimes God uses that habit to bring you to repentance. You may be sitting here today because it's what you do on Sunday morning. And he may be using this sermon as a way to bring you back. To cause you to repent. We're continually repenting as Christians. And so be in those habits. And even if you don't feel like it that day, go anyway. You know, that's one of the best things about my my um, raising. Even though I disagree with many of the things I was taught growing up. But I was taught on Sunday, when the church is having church, you go. And even through college, when I got into complete, utter sin, and I was not saved, I was a false convert, but I was in complete and utter sin, I always went to church Sunday morning. And as I look back on that that habit, and parents, this is important, instill that habit in your children, because it could be... What keeps them from going down a complete road of despair? Because as I look back on that, even Sunday morning, even as an unsaved person, every Sunday morning I was convicted. My conscience, I knew better. And it it was a restraint. It was a God's grace on me as a restraint to keep me from going deeper into sin than I could have. Corporate worship is extremely important. Prayer, worship... Spending time meditating on God's Word. You know, I talked about how you've got to compare yourself to Christ in order to be humble. Well, how can you compare yourself to Christ if you don't read the Word? You have to be in the Word of God in order to achieve this. So those are some practical things to to help you, to help guide you in this area. So ultimately all we're talking about here is obedience. It's obeying the Word of God, doing what He has told us to do. And then the second thing is to turn from sin. He says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. These are the things that we're actually saying. These are the things that we're actually doing. Stop doing those things that you know displeases the Lord and start doing the right thing. And I'll tell you this. I'll give you a warning too, Christians. Watch out for those gray areas. There's no reason a Christian has to push the lines. To be set apart is to be set apart. And it's a lot easier to tell somebody is sanctified and set apart from the world if they're farther away from the line. The closer to the line you get, does that mean it's law? Maybe not. You have all these questions. What about this? What about that? You know what? If you're asking... I would probably stay away from it. You now, why? Because the closer to the line you get, the less sanctified, the less set apart you are. So there's no reason to push those gray areas. Turn from your sins. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. But it's not enough just to deal with our outward actions, right? That's not what this is about. Because the Pharisees... Had their outward actions all cleaned up and looking good, right? But what do he say? They were whitewashed tombs and within them was death. It was rotten inside. So what we really have to deal with is the heart and the attitude behind those actions. We, we have to purify our hearts. Verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The New American Standard uses the word instead of wretched there, be miserable. The King James says afflicted. So what we're really talking about here is godly sorrow. Over your sin. I remember a sermon by Paul Washer years ago at the youth conference. He says, when was the last time you wept over your sin? And I remember thinking, I don't know if I ever did. First time I heard that. And it's still convicting to me now because I know I do not weep over my sin the way that I should. Second Corinthians 7 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. At the very heart of repentance is godly sorrow. You have to look at your sin, you have, and, to what, and how do you do that? The second song we sang today, The Precious Blood. When you consider your sin, and you consider that song, When you consider your sin and you consider the gospel, which is what that song is really about, it's about the precious blood, right? The blood that was shed on our behalf. When God, when Christ was on that cross and God looked down on him and he said, and Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he say that? Because at that moment, he became sin, right? Jesus himself bore These things that we're pushing the area on. These things that we're dipping our toe into. These things that we're flirting around with. These things that we, maybe we don't do them, but we laugh at them. Maybe we don't do them, but we allow them. Maybe we don't do them, but we certainly don't condemn them when other people do and Christ bore him. And the wrath of God was on him because of it. How do you over how do you weep? How do you find godly sorrow over this sin? You consider that. Meditate on it. Think about it. Sing songs about it. Listen to songs about it. Read the scriptures about it, and it will God will bring you to repentance. And it's not just an intellectual nod at the fact that we're doing the wrong thing. That happens all the time. I've been guilty of that. But it has to go into a deeper level, and it has to be God convicting it. It has to be God reaching in and touching our heart. And so that that response to sin, when that happens, it will produce change and transformation inwardly. And if it's inwardly, it will show up outwardly. And he says, verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So the key to all of this is humility. And it's such a weird trap to get into, like, well, I I would really like to be exalted, so I'm going to humble myself. Well, you already missed it. If your desire is to be exalted, you're not humbling yourself, right? Right. If you do anything that got, so God will exalt you, he's not going to exalt you. Unless you be built up in pride and then the fall would come. But the key, and, it, and the people that you see God raise up and, the, and that don't fall, the ones that stay steadfast that God has elevated to a place and he says, this is, this is the place where I have you and he uses them for a purpose and they don't wind up falling. It's those that God granted great humility to first. And that's what we should strive for. We shouldn't strive for the exaltation. Our, our heart should always be, why, God, would you even save me? Why would you ever allow me to stand behind this pulpit and preach, which I ask myself many times, I have no idea the answer There's so many better than me. There's so many more gifted than me. That should be our heart. That should be our desire. Humility. A dying to self. A placing others' needs higher than our own. A placing a need for the kingdom of God higher than our own. Let's pray. Father, Father, I thank you, God, for this. And, Lord, I... God, if it was nobody else, it was me that needed this. Lord, and I pray, God, that um, your mercy and your grace would prevail over my life. As I know the pride in my heart. I know... The shortcomings I have The desires that I have And the anger that I have When those desires are cut short God, it all applies to me And I pray, Lord That you would grant me That deep, true repentance of the heart As only you can do God, that you would give me desires for you That you would give me the ability To draw near to you So you would draw near to me That I would submit fully to your will God, and I pray that for any here, anyone else who's struggling or who's dealing with these things, that you would grant them that, that you would have us to fully repent and submit to you, God. I thank you for the grace that you've given us, the grace that is the gospel, the grace of your Son who died on our behalf, and in his name I pray, amen.